Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. And you're alive. Hello everyone, I'm Arnie Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind, add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. We humans, we don't take enough time out to stop and smell the olives, do we? A hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. And I have to start by saying a hearty hello to everyone who watched the Super Bowl. Kansas City Chiefs, you did it. And you 49ers, you played an exceptional game. What an exciting game it was. I don't usually get excited about American football. It's a little bit too rough for me, although there's a lot of nice little tight ends to look at. But it stops and starts too much for me compared to British soccer. But my sweetie is a University of Missouri KC alumni and a Kansas City, Missouri native. And my entire household is ablaze in red. And I have to tell you, during the Super Bowl, during the actual game itself, some strange sounds were coming out of our living room. I thought at some point a calf was giving birth, a cow was giving birth to a calf. There's some strange, strange noises, but a great game. We pulled it through. Well done to both teams. Hurrah. Okay. Hey, everyone. Thank you. It's nice to be with you again. Thanks for joining me on yet another round of Cosmic Cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini as we try to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo in today's ego-driven, geo-engineered, occasionally angry little world. Our goal here at Cosmic Cocktail Central is to let the spirit inhabit the human. And by spirit, I mean what you would call the Holy Spirit inhabit the human. To look upon the world from a higher vantage point, to rise above the dysfunction and the disease, to have the guts to examine our co-creation and realign our life experience as necessary. And necessary it is. Our rally cry here at Metaphysical Martini is, Awaken, O my people, do not follow the path of the sheeple, and do not give your God cause to weeple. And that's a great rally cry, and it rhymes, even though I'm pretty sure supreme cosmic intelligence has no human characteristics and does not succumb to weepling. When it comes down to it, the soul doesn't actually suffer, in my humble opinion. The soul experiences. It's the human interface, also known as the pain body, that is the axis of woe for our race. We are humanoids, occasionally paranoids, often annoyed, sometimes unemployed, easily decoyed, 
and generally an excellent study for people like Sigmund Freud. But then again, I'm not putting us down, you see, because that's just the human interface. That's the pain body. And that is coding. And coding is fluid. It can be changed. It's not written in stone. Our thought patterns write the codes for our experience. And cliche as it may sound, change your thoughts, change your perception, and the world around us will change. But, and as always, it's a nice big but, we have to commit to it. We can't expect 10 minutes of positive thinking to eliminate decades of mental mismanagement, can we? 10 minutes each day, however, leads to 15 minutes each day, which leads to 20 minutes each day, to 25 minutes each day, and before we know it, we have leveled up. A productive, functional, stable, dare I say happy life is the side effect of a calibrated energy anatomy. If we doubt our power to influence universal change, remember this, all things came from no thing. Everything physical in the cosmos manifested eons after we thought it into existence. And that's an interesting and useful point to ponder. Everything came from no thing. From the pure potential of whatever we call source energy, we co-created multiple universes, multiple life forms, multiple experiences, and an entire ever-expanding cosmic adventure ground. If we have that much power, and I believe we do, why on earth do we feel so powerless on earth? I mean, for example, if you're nervous about asking your employer for an increase in pay, you know, before you formulate your argument, take a moment to remind yourself of your true nature. You're a sovereign soul, a creation of supreme cosmic intelligence. You are cosmic star stuff not an insignificant bit of fluff. We have to remind ourselves of that every single day. And it's not just us, of course. When you look upon another soul sovereign being, you have to acknowledge that they too are star stuff and not insignificant fluff. Now, that's a lot of power. And with power comes responsibility. Thinking, wow, well, it's groovy and all, isn't it? But here's the thing. Who is doing the thinking for you? Who runs your mind? And from what level of awareness slash conditioning slash indoctrination are we reaching our conclusions? You see, people today, we swear up and down. We're independent thinkers, free thinkers, but we're not. We're not. If you want to spend a week, just a week reading mainstream news, like lots of variations of mainstream news, not just one paper, but papers from all over America, all over the world. And also the same with the alternative news, for that matter, all over the world, not just one or two sites. 
And then you go ahead and you check all the posts on social media and quietly listen in on conversations in coffee shops and other public places and, and your own conversations. Of course, you will hear, for the most part, a retelling of that day's daily spin. However, I am encouraged. We all say we're awakening and some people go, no, we're not. Well, we are because, you know, we feel those rumblings of awakening. I do. The Epstein affair, the Prince Andrew affair, pedo priests, people mentioning what we now have to call fallacious ensigns. Um, you know, people didn't talk about those sort of things in the in the open before. Now people are talking about them in the grocery store. And that's wonderful. The problem is in our busy and very distracted world today, our decoy world, research takes a lot of time, doesn't it? And we're all very busy. But are we too busy to pay attention to the things that really matter? To the events that shape our world? Are we too busy to spend a mere 20 minutes each day honouring the sanctity of our being by the simple act of sitting in a quiet space, engaging in the deep, slow, purposeful breathing that clears our energy anatomy and restores vigour to the physical body? I hope not. Because it is the simple rituals done mindfully and regularly that make the biggest difference in the long run. Right. Well, that's enough pontificating from me. Um, let's have a little sip of this drinky poo over here. Mm. Lovely. And let's hear what you have to say. You out there, because this show is all about you. Believe it or not, it is. What do you glorious manifestations of the divine wish to discuss? Because the main meat of this show, um, <clears throat> I try to make it Q&A, questions and answers, as people are always emailing me questions. So, that you know, let's give it a public forum. And I don't always have answers, by the way, um, but I'm always up for a bit of respectful discourse, a little respectful discourse, a little research. And so, you know, let's get to it. You can email your questions to arnie at arnieavidician.com or uh, send a postcard to Cosmic Arnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, 97070, USA. Uh, and do that because that's where I pick up my mail, obviously. And let's see, I uh, picked up a whole bunch uh, sorted through this morning, put them in a hat, and now we shall pick one. Okay, our first question comes from Diana from San Diego, California. Oh, I bet it's a lot warmer there than it is in Oregon right now. Um, Diana writes, Dear Arnie, I am a British expat. Hello. And can't find any decent marmalade in the USA. I see. Um, why is American marmalade so tasteless? Everything else here is wonderful. And I have no plans to return to the UK anytime soon. It's just the marmalade and the bacon. They don't have proper bacon rashers here. I like to make Paddington Bear's favorite sandwiches, bacon and marmalade. Ah, oh, sigh. Ugh, it's a disaster. Thank you for listening. TTFN. <clears throat> and for those of you who don't know, <laughs> TTFN in Great Britain, ta-ta for now. It's a cute little way of signing off. Oh, well, Diana... As my school teachers used to say, there's no such thing as a stupid question, and they were right. Um, but when they said that, they usually threw the chalkboard clearing thing at me. Uh, clearly, this is of paramount importance to you, so let's address it. Um, 
American marmalade is tasteless for two reasons, I believe. One, it's not marmalade. It's orange jam. And two, like everything else macro and processed prepared for the general American palate, it contains four times more sugar than is necessary. The marmalade you and I grew up with back in England, that's made from the rind of Seville oranges. Um, hmm, Seville oranges, they are quite literally inedible in their raw state. But when processed, they make marvelous marmalade. They're not sweet, not at all. And the finished product has a touch of bitterness. Of course, marmalade can be made from any form of citrus, but the bitter orange is the most popular. Uh, so I did a little bit of research on this because, um, you know, clearly I pre-sorted these questions, even though I don't know which one I'm going to pick on the day. Um, the word marmalade comes from the Portuguese marmelada, which uh, comes from the Portuguese word for quince, marmelo. So up until about the 1700s, I believe marmalade was just quince preserve and very probably expensive to come by outside of Portugal. Uh, at one point, I found out that the gentleman, um, a merchant called Mr. Hull, who lived in Exeter, the UK, sent a couple of jars uh, to Henry VIII. And it was apparently a favorite of his and a favorite of Anne Boleyn. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that Anne Boleyn enjoyed that bit of marmalade on toast. It must have been a great consolation to her as she walked to uh, the chopping block on her final days. And I found a few recipes for things called marmalette of oranges and marmalade of oranges uh, in the 1600s. And I see that it was just basically a quince preserve. But in time, that fruit preserve, it morphed into different types of paste cooked with or without the rind chunks in it. I like mine very chunky monkey, by the way. Um, and people experimented with various citrus fruits and flavorings and thicknesses. Uh, until we got to the marmalade that we have today. Now, the best, in my opinion, is made in Dundee, Scotland. And there's a legend about its origins. They say that marmalade was an accident. It has been reported that um, around 1700, a Spanish ship was storm damaged and it was carrying Seville oranges. And because of the damage, it sought refuge in the Dundee Harbour. And it limped into the harbour, and I think the ship was falling apart, or so they say. So the cargo was sold off very cheaply to a local merchant. His name was James Keeler, and he was having a bad year. So he bought it really cheap, and his wife said, I'll turn this all into jam. And she did, and it became this wonderful marmalade, and the rest is history. And if we check with food historians, they say that is a legend and it's not true. But who knows, you know? So at some point or another, people experimented and we came up with this wonderful marmalade. Um, Diana, you'll have to do what the rest of us English uh, expats do. Go to one of those British food websites and order the good Scottish stuff. My favorite is Dundee or Dewar's. They're the best. And uh, now I'm going to have to say something about Paddington Bear's eating habits because I don't think you're right. Now, it is true that he loved marmalade sandwiches, because I believe Paddington Bear was found, he and his family were found in the jungles of Peru, um, if Peru had jungles, but, you know, uh, fetid areas of Peru. And the Englishman who found him offered him marmalade and he got hooked on it. So I know that Paddington Bear loved marmalade. He even kept an emergency marmalade sandwich in his hat. I remember that. But I don't think he put bacon and marmalade together. 
So I'm going to have to research that bit, but I don't think you're right on that. Um, however, bacon and marmalade sandwiches, I remember from boarding school uh, back in the days when I actually, um, you know, ate meat and all. Um, it was tasty. Uh, but did Paddington Bear eat it? I don't know. But thank you for the question, Diana. And uh, thanks for giving us something different to um, to chew on. <laughs> all right. Marmalade. Who would have known that we were going to talk about marmalade on a metaphysics show? But we did. And there we are. So let's see. Um, let's get another question out here. Um, which one? Shall we close my eyes and pick one or shall I just? All right. Never mind. Let's do it. Uh, here's one. All right. Ani. Dear Ani. I recently binge watched all your YouTube videos. Ooh, good for you, mate. Um, I know it would take you several hours to answer this question in full. Oh, God. Um, but can you give us a quick rundown on why you support Britain's withdrawal from the EU and why you feel America should withdraw from its role as a world policeman? Thank you for considering my question. And that is from Bruce K. Initial K. OK, Bruce. Uh, wow. You actually binge watched all 105 videos. Man, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, I will make it quick because this is hours and hours and hours of presentation time and we don't have that. The EU, European Union, if you do your historical research, you will find that it was a cherished dream of the Third Reich to have a centralized Europe with the glorious Aryan nation in charge. Homogenizing the word one, uh, the world one step at a time. So. I've done a couple of other podcasts, I think, where I talk about Agenda 21 and other Orwellian globalist nightmare scenarios. You might want to check a few of those out. Or if you really want to know more about that sort of thing, David Icke. Go watch some David Icke videos. He explains it all very well. In my opinion, national sovereignty does not obviate good relations with your neighbors. You know, because national sovereignty is not nationalism. It's not jingo nationalism. It's just a sense of patriotism in a way. It's, it's your tribe. You want to be, as an individual, you want to be the best that you can be, the best version of yourself. And you want that for your tribe, for your collection, um, for, you know, for, for your collective. That's national sovereignty. I mean, globalists would have us think otherwise. And they think that we're stupid children who cannot be trusted to get along without Big Brother watching over us, regulating our personal and collective habits, infiltrating our minds, one sound bite and one video flash bite at a time. I believe that given enough time, the globalist establishment will destroy everything that makes us unique. Our cultural heritage our language, our local color, all of this will be washed clean away as the borders are opened and then dissolved completely. All sense of the ethnic washed clean away and humanity boiled down into what I see being a flavorless, homogenous stew of obedient drones carrying out the wishes of the aforementioned establishment, keeping the wheels of industry turning without benefit to 99.9% of the population. I say this 
a lot, and I will say it always, unity through diversity is the challenge on this planet. That's what the USA, the experiment that is the USA, that was failing, that now we're trying to make not fail, was all about. We mustn't forget that. We don't have to homogenize. I don't have to look or be like the other person. The other person doesn't have to look or be like me. We can be full expressions of our cultures and still have good relations with each other. That's the challenge and that's how we grow. No one needs to tell you to open borders. If there ever comes a time in our evolution where we evolve so much and we all look upon each other as manifestations of source and we've grown above ethnicity, we've grown above anything cultural, then we will open the borders and we will say we are one with source. We don't care what we look like. Open the borders. Everybody be one. But we, the people, have to do that, not the establishment telling us under false pretenses, pretending that that's liberalism and that's the way it should go. Not that I have any strong feelings on this. As for America <laughs> policing the world, well, surely such arrogance deserves, at the very least, a smacked bottom, don't you think? I mean, American Congress is a cesspool of corruption, an ego-driven agenda. Even worse, a greater part of the population have not yet figured that out. We, the American public, are systematically nickel and dimed into poverty with a new tax. It looks like imposed every time we turn around or open a utility bill. As a nation, we declare war on countries that resist takeover from the banking cabal. We rip their infrastructure into shreds. We murder their people. We hijack their resources. And we have yet to figure out that deep state ideology has permeated every layer of our society. And we want to police the world on what planet, please? I don't think I need to go on, but I want to thank you for the question, Bruce, and TY for watching my videos because you have more stamina than I do. Right. So please don't confuse me with a nationalist or a xenophobe. Because if you take a look at my background, you know that none of that is true. National sovereignty is not jingo nationalism. All right. <clears throat> another one, another one. Oh, I want to, this is a postcard. And this is such a pretty postcard. This postcard has a lovely photograph of Connemara National Park in Ireland. But it's postmarked, um, it's written over it, but it looks like Skokie. S-K-O-K-I-E, I think. I have no idea where Skokie is or if indeed it is Skokie. So I'll have to look that up because I don't know. But it comes from somebody called Teresa. And Teresa says, do you think magic exists? <clears throat> and that's all Teresa wrote. <laughs> uh, well, Teresa, um, lovely postcard, but difficult to answer that question, isn't it, love? Because it depends on the context, really, doesn't it? I mean, are we talking wizardry, sorcery, witchcraft, druids, occult, necromancy, ugh, black magic, white magic, spellcrafting, hoodoo, voodoo, doodoo, hexes? I, mean, I don't know what your definition of magic is. So 
if you're asking me if I believe in the dictionary definition of it, um, which is the power of apparently influencing the course of events by using mysterious or supernatural forces, then I say, yes, it does exist, but I don't think of those forces as mysterious or supernatural, just various levels of subtle realms that can be explored and understood and used for the benefit of all. Because when we are aligned with all that is, we see magic everywhere, don't we? When we're in awe and wonderment of cosmic creation, we see magic in all things. I mean, the cycle of life in Mother Nature is magical. Mycelium is magical. Seeds germinating and turning into plant life is magical. Coffee beans turning into espresso is magical. I think the magic and the mundane coexist in perfect harmony because it just depends on how you view it. So I thank you for your question, Teresa. Uh, you've given us something to think about. I think we should all go away and think about what is our definition of magic and how often do we encounter it. In fact, I think I'm going to start a magic journal. What do I see as magic every single day? All righty, and we'll take another question. And there is no name on this and there's no problem. You don't have to identify yourself. Um, sometimes I wish I didn't have to either. I'm going to have a little sip. <clears throat> Dear Suburban Shaman, you seem very interested in world affairs. I would like to know if you support Israel. Oh, um, well, yes, I am interested in world affairs. I currently live in this world and its affairs are of great interest to me. Do I support Israel? Hmm. That's a bit like asking me if I believe magic exists. I have no idea what you mean by do I support Israel? Do I support Israel in what? Growing avocados? Making good falafel? Having wonderful beach resorts? <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer this question, but I'll answer it if you rewrite it. If you elucidate, I'll be happy to answer your question. Okay. Um, moving on to another question right now. Uh, let's see. Arnie, do you think America should continue providing foreign aid to other countries? I'm not talking about emergency relief after fires or famine. Oh, I'm not talking about emergency relief or fires or famine. Sorry. Um, well, the question, this question, I, I guess it's as simple as it is complex. Uh, humanitarian considerations aside, and in today's, let's face it, corrupt environment, why would one country pour money into another country if not to gain something from it? So I'm not going to say too much on this today because there is too much to say. And we all know that the moment we refuse to participate in perpetual warfare, there will be more than enough for everyone to live comfortably and in peace. It certainly doesn't seem logical to send funds abroad when our homeless population grows daily, as does the number of those on the verge of homelessness. It certainly doesn't seem logical to send funds abroad when those whom we sent abroad to supposedly defend certain freedoms return to less than adequate medical care and care in general. 
It certainly doesn't make sense to send funds abroad when the infrastructure of so many of our cities is in dangerous disrepair. And it certainly doesn't seem logical to send funds abroad when young Americans pursuing university education become indentured servants to their student loans. I could go on, but I won't. There is a saying, we all learnt this at school, I think, the saying is charity begins at home. If you have a family to feed, to care for, a family under your guardianship, surely it makes sense to provide for them, provide for their needs first. What credibility would you have if you deprived your tribe of their basic needs in order to gain favor with others? If you have more, share. Certainly. When we send money abroad, look, you know, and again, humanitarian considerations aside, until we acknowledge, understand and dissolve deep state ideology and the Luciferian effect it has upon our world, all this is a moot point. I thank you for your question, whoever you are. You have a very interesting email address, which I will not, of course, share with anyone The bottom line with all of this is the military-industrial complex eats up all the money, the made-up money, the money that's made up in the air. So if we didn't put it all into that, everybody would have everything that they need to live in peace. Surely that's a goal. But when you look at how governments are run, it's far from being a goal. So ramp up your social activism, people. Because we're not getting through. We're getting through a little bit, but we're not getting through a little bit. And that's what we need to do. Okay, and I think this might be the last question of the day. Uh, we'll see, because I want to get through all of my usual thingies. All right. Uh, dear Arnie, my family and I are Armenian. From Massachusetts. I do know there's a lot of Armenians. There's a big Armenian community in Massachusetts, I think in Waterton um, mainly. Um, anyway, back to this family. Uh, we get together and we listen to your show as soon as it's up on YouTube. Thank you. We enjoy it very much. Thank you. My daughter wants to study tarot with you. Ooh. And my husband appreciates your methodical, logical approach. Most men do. We wondered why you don't mention or discuss your Armenian heritage. Someone as articulate as you could do much to further our cause. Ooh, hmm, aha. Well, first of all, thank you for the email. I really like the idea that Armenians are listening to this uh, and they're getting together and uh, <clears throat> going to YouTube and looking it up. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you for the feedback. Uh, Shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I? Yes, I shall. I'm going to answer this question on the radio today because it comes up for me from time to time and I have held back, but today is the day. Um, because every so often, Armenians will write to me and they will write to me very politely and they will hint that I'm not doing enough for Armenianism. I'm not doing enough. I'm not a good enough Armenian. I'm not furthering the Armenian cause. And somehow, and several of them allude to the fact that I might be embarrassed by my ethnic background. Uh, mm, okay. As far as I'm aware, I have never denied my Armenian race ancestry. I have no reason to. 
If I was French, I wouldn't deny that either. If I was German, I wouldn't deny that either. If I was from Swaziland, why would I deny it? So I've never denied my Armenian race ancestry. But that said, here's the thing. I am not a citizen of the Republic of Armenia. And quite rightfully, therefore, I have no say in its affairs. I'm a British citizen with permanent resident alien status in the USA. Yes, I am an alien. I grew up in the UK, in London. I was educated in the UK. I'm still very much a London girl. No one in my family is from Armenia. We're from England, Cyprus, Turkey, Ethiopia, and I think we've got some in Uruguay of all places. And when you say further our cause, I presume you mean genocide recognition. And here's my take on that, because it's a very deep wound with Armenians. For, for those of you who don't know, um, the Ottoman Empire and the young Turk Junta that followed it uh, perpetrated a genocide against Armenians and any non-Turkic people uh, in their country. And it resulted in a, a deportation marches and the massacre of anywhere up to one and a half million people. We, we don't know for sure, to be honest. So here's my take on that. It happened. It was part of the pan-Turkic, pan-Turanism expansion. Germany was heavily involved in it. There exists a mountain of unimpeachable evidence that says so. Even the Turks admit it happened. They choose not to admit it was a focused ethnic cleansing. They think it's something they would prefer historians to debate for eternity. It's a political thing, isn't it, this recognition? And politics right now is a dirty and very filthy game. And I have to be honest with you, my brothers and sisters, Official recognition means nothing to me. I doubt it means anything to those who died up to and including 1915. They are in a higher state of consciousness, safe in the love of the divine. <clears throat> if any Armenians out there are waiting for Turkey to officially recognize the genocide before they can close this deep and festering wound, I hope you're not holding your breath because you will suffocate before that happens. If you want resolution, I suggest the following. This April 24, and every April 24 going forward for as long as is necessary, April 24 being the designated day of commemoration for the Armenian genocide, instead of spewing hatred backwards in time to people who no longer exist, and sending aggression and hatred to a new generation of Turks who grew up with no knowledge of the truth of these actions because their history was carefully rewritten to facilitate the creation of a pristine, modern, European-flavored Turkey. Let us declare April 24 a day of forgiveness. Let us unconditionally forgive all errors in judgment and action for the highest good of all mankind. Let us pray for the illumination of the souls of all who died horribly in these atrocities. And let us pray for the illumination of the souls of those who committed them. Let us put ourselves in their position for one moment, not as indoctrinated humans, but as souls entering heaven 
reviewing their actions. The horror of seeing their actions from a higher vantage point. The agony of knowing they tortured and murdered and raped because they let fear and greed into their heart. Because they let another control their mind and therefore their actions. Armenians are fond of reminding others that they were the first nation to officially accept Christianity. Well, if Christianity has anything in common with spiritual maturity, then let's do this. Let's declare April 24th a day of absolute and unconditional forgiveness. Let us release the pain, the hatred, the frustration. Let all souls feel the relief that true forgiveness brings. And then... Please, let's move on. And quite possibly, once the field of pain and resistance has been dissolved, we may see official recognition from the descendants of the original perpetrators. And if we do, there will be no need for a great celebration. Just a knowing nod as we acknowledge that all is in perfect alignment with all that is. Asvad Sere, the divine is great. So my Armenian brothers and sisters, who think that I'm not Armenian enough and want me to show you my Armenian side, I assure you I don't have an Armenian side. My Armenianness is fully integrated into my entire being. And it's very much a part of me. It's not something I take out to show off or to hide. It is my core. So in honor of all who feel exiled, in honor of all who feel that they yearn for a place to call home, and ultimately in honor of all who seek to know their true home, deep in the heart of the divine, from my deep heart's core to yours, all I can offer you is this. I'm going to share with you the lament of the exile, which is rarely, if ever, heard outside an Armenian community. Mer 
mit ihnen der gut auch gehen. Und Muschkilan, Marmürzen auf der Ganschin. Himal Gerli, Himal Schertank, Mörergier. Kelelayu, Kelertank, May the divine rest and illuminate all souls of all those who suffered ethnic cleansing. I do hope that was Armenian enough for my brothers and my sisters. I'm just going to wipe a tear from my eye because I've never been able to get through that <laughs> without crying. So, ah, drinky poo always helps. All right. I think it's time to lighten the mood a little, don't you? <laughs> How about a little pat of poetry? Yes, folks, after a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than going home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky-poo, and writing really bad, non-peer-reviewed poetry. Why have Aristophanes and classical literary prowess when you can have Cosmic Arnie and a whole lot less. Now, today's <laughs> today's poem, it's one of mine, of course, and uh, I'm on a diet, you see, and it's been fine. It's great. Um, so I wrote this song, uh, this poem, and it's called uh, <laughs> I'm Not Depressed, I'm on a Diet. <laughs> Thank you very much. Just take a moment to regroup myself here. All right. I'm not depressed. I'm on a diet by Ani Avedisian. <laughs> Staring in the mirror and evaluating one's girth doesn't do much to uplift one's self-worth. The decision's been made, so I suppose that's that. I have to admit, I'm a little too fat. I did all the blood work and allergy testing blood sugar elevated, blood sugar resting. The results came back quickly and couldn't be clearer. My backside won't fit in the rear view mirror. <laughs> Wine's out for now and all grains are taboo. That means no beer. I'm not happy. Boo-hoo. But when all said and done, a few months from now, I will no longer resemble a plump dairy cow. I rejoice as I imagine what the future may hold. I'll be able to apply makeup without a blindfold. And the men who eventually lift up my burial casket won't get hernias and blow out a gasket. Yes, this is best. My decision is wise. I'll avert my eyes from fries and from pies. And if for a moment I think I might stray... I'll simply remind myself of how much I weigh. Ah, oh, I love that little poem. It's going to motivate me to stay on my diet. So there it is from my upcoming collection, really bad but occasionally brilliant, poetry from a mad suburban shaman. I'm not depressed. I'm on a diet. 
and now it's time for Tarot A Go Go, a little shenanigana with the Major Arcana. I first became enamoured with tarot. I think I was 11 years old, and that was a very long time ago. I love it because shaman work is dream work, and every state of existence outside source is a dream. And creative visualization in my line of work, or anyone's line of work, is a very important skill. And tarot is one of those tools that can help us develop this skill. So last show, we featured number 11, Justice. So today's focus is number 12 in the Major Arcana, The Hanged Man. So let's take a look at that, always using the Rider Waite deck, because that's how we started. And what we have here is we have a chap with lovely red pants hanging upside down, suspended from one leg, um, his right leg, and his left leg is tucked under his right leg just above the knee. And both his hands are behind his back, bound or just placed, we don't know, because we can't see. And at first glance, this looks painful, doesn't it? But the expression on this chap's face doesn't seem particularly anxious or pained. It doesn't look like a criminal crucifixion in any shape or form. He's just hanging there upside down. But why? Well, Perhaps he wants to experience life from a different perspective. Perhaps he's bored and he needs a change. Or he's stuck in a rut and he needs to explore new angles. Perhaps it's a bit like Odin when he was hanging from Idrisel. He needs to push through the established parameters of his, of his consciousness. He needs to pierce the barriers of new consciousness to a new level of consciousness and receive wisdom from a higher plane. He wants to transcend the ego mind and enter the realm of spirit mind, alignment with cosmic intelligence. So chances are, when you pick this card, you are experiencing or you're about to experience a major change in your life. One that will require readjustment on your part. One that will require also the purging of, uh, of emotional triggers and past traumas. You want to be able to think clearly. You're hanging upside down to pierce through consciousness for clarity. And if we draw this card reversed, it guides us not to be stubborn. Change your outlook if you have to. Dare to do that. Dare to be open-minded and expand horizons. It's time for a change. New music, new voices in your head. Be adaptable. Don't conform. Don't be a drone. Don't be afraid. Explore a different path. Don't be a martyr to the false ego. That's what this card about is all about. Number 12, the hanged man. Just hanging, open to inspiration and new adventure. And every so often, people, we just have to do that anyway as we level up and cycle up. And now, my darlings, it is time for Plato Chips. And I think uh, we just about have time for that. So let's do it. Plato Chips is where we normally take note of and quote a philosopher of note. But today, instead of highlighting one particular philosopher, I thought we'd take a quick look at how humor is viewed in philosophy. Is it valued? Is it shunned? Well, it depends on who you ask, really, doesn't it? Why do we find things funny? That's always been interesting to me. What mechanisms are at play? 
I personally think humor is a wonderful thing and an asset to Earth people. It enhances our life experience. And to be honest, I have no idea how I would cope with life without a good dose of humor. Others aren't so convinced, um, especially back in, back in the day. Plato. One of our shining examples, Plato, for example, thought that humor, laughing, being amused, interrupted one's rational self-control. And he went as far as to call it malicious. So in Plato's ideal world, there would be no comedy. Plato, that's messed up. I'm glad you're dead. Stay dead. Unfortunately, though, his attitude, uh, you, you know, towards humor, it influenced others and it carried over into later other schools of thought. And I think that's why we see so many religious institutions outlawing humor, banning laughter. How do you ban laughter? You know, and then, of course, oh, here they come again. Wherever you turn, those dry as a bone Puritans in the 17th century, they actually outlawed comedy. And I think they find people for, for being jolly. Um, if those of you who know Hobbes, the chap who wrote Leviathan and uh, and Descartes, a chap who did Passions of the Soul and a lot of other things. Uh, both of those thought that when a person laughed, they were expressing feelings of superiority. Really? All laughter? I mean, what a superior attitude one must have to come up with such an all-encompassing codswallop of a theory. Laughter has many expressions. Not all laughter is superiority-induced mockery, surely. I think humor is multifaceted, as we are. I mean, we can laugh at very clever comedy. Uh, today's comedy is not clever, unfortunately. It's cheap and mean-spirited. But anyway, should we find ourselves laughing at clever comedy, whether it's verbal or physical comedy, are we laughing from a sense of superiority? So I, I don't think so. We're just laughing because something tickles our funny bone. So what is that all about? When we laugh at ourselves, for example, we're not, I don't think, debasing or mocking our former selves, are we? We're indulging, um, we're not indulging in superiority over our former selves. We're laughing because we're relieved. We're relieved because we're not as stupid now as we were a few minutes ago. And, and that's a jolly good thing to be relieved about. So again, in the 1700s, people started studying this. And there's this thing called the relief theory. And it was assumed that laughter was a release valve that blew off pent up surplus energy, like the diddly widdly bit on your pressure cooker, you know. Um, and these weren't necessarily philosophers discussing this. These were scientists, uh, medical people, uh, in the very early days of trying to figure out how the brain worked, how the nerves connected, how the sensors worked. It was believed that we had no conscious control over our laughter. It was believed that if pressure built up in our system through emotions and reached a critical stage, we laughed and released the buildup. And at that time, they believed the components of our nervous system had some form of actual gas in them, which built up and popped. I think they called it animal spirits. Well, OK, that was the early days they were trying to figure it all out. And uh, later on, as we began to understand more about how the brain works and how nerves are connected, they came up with what they call the incongruity theory. Um, I'll quote from this. Um, it was put forward that laughter is caused by the perception of something that is incongruous, meaning it violates our expectations and our mental patterns. And we probably still feel that way today. It's the main theory, I think, used to explain laughter. And big wigs in the philosophical world like Kierkegaard and Kant and Schopenhauer, they back this theory. And then there was, of course, James Beatty, who, who says, um, and I, I don't know if I'm quoting or paraphrasing, it's been so many years, um, 
He said laughter is caused by the mind taking notice of two or more incongruous circumstances that unite in one complex assemblage. Hmm. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I just laughed. Hmm. Uh, we laugh because something toys with our expectations, I think. So, okay, I can buy into that. But if that was the only reason we laugh, why would laughter slash humor slash amusement be the only end result? Why wouldn't it be another emotion? Why couldn't it result in anger or fear or outrage or disgust? Um, and so where are we with all that? Well, the desire to laugh, being amused, it can't be an auto response to incongruity, can it? It can't just be an auto response. On some level, we have to understand what we're laughing at and we have to enjoy it. And I think Michael Clark, um, God rest his soul, the late and noted humanist, summed it up pretty well for us. We perceive something to be incongruous. We enjoy perceiving it. Then we enjoy the incongruity simply for itself. And another way of putting that would be a dog walks into a bar. One of his front limbs is bandaged up. He goes up to the barkeep and says, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. Hmm. You know, I've wanted to address that for quite a while. I know with Plato Chips, we don't go into any detail because it's only like a three minute segment. But I'm so um, I really do wish we taught the fundamentals of philosophy at school because it makes us think properly, think and creatively think, not just critically think. We just it just expands everything, every single nano cell in our being. Um, and humor, I believe, is very, very important. And that's all we've got time for for Plato Chips this week. Next time around, I think I'm going to feature a modern day philosopher. Not sure who, but I'll give it my full attention. And you'll know when you tune in on February the 19th. So we had a quiz on the last show. I read a poem and anyone who correctly identified it uh, got a $40 gift certificate to my services. And I'm happy to say we had quite a few responses. Uh, and a goodly handful of gift certificates were distributed. Um, and the, the answer was, of course, uh, Teresa of Avila. The poem being, he desired me, so I came close. Mmm, steamy spiritual stuff. Well, since it was so popular, I'm going to do another one, another quiz. I'm going to read a poem or a part of a poem. And if you can identify the author, you'll win a $40 gift certificate to any of my services. And the poem, it could be old, it could be new. It might be a translation or not. Over time, it might have been set to music or not. And it might not be the whole thing. Perhaps it's just a verse or a snippet. It could be anything. And I'll try not to make things too easy for you in this age of Google will know. So here we go. If you can tell me the author of this, I'll shell out the gift certificate. Since I have begun these conversations with you, who holds in your hand the breath of my sinful soul, I am shaken and rightly so, trembling in constant fear, remembering with unbearable horror that defies words, O creator of heaven and earth, you inescapable tribunal, which justly judges me a sinner. 
And what is more, there exists no remedy for the multitude of incurable mortal wounds and the stinging bites inflicted by the deadly fangs of him who pursues my soul's destruction. Especially since, according to the prophet, there is no putting off the day of confrontation. What an incredibly tortured soul. I am so glad I don't feel that way. My relationship with the divine is one of great joy and lightness. If you can identify that, and I'll warn you right now, it's obscure. I'll shell out the dosh. All right, my darlings, I think we're actually getting very close to the end of the show. So you will forgive me if we uh, don't do the wizard's gizzard, and we will do that next time. I think there's just enough time to tell you that if you want to know more about my services, go to the website, arniavidician.com. Sign up for my newsletter, Monday Messages. They're short, they're sweet, they're full of buttery goodness, and it tells you what's going to happen. Um, sometimes I don't even know. I have to read the newsletter to know what I'm going to do. So in addition to Metaphysical Martini here on Cosmic Reality Radio, I have the pleasure of co-hosting the Say What Show on the second Saturday of each month with Fancy Nancy Hopkins and Jolly Dolly Howard. But wait, there's more. I have my own YouTube channel, several of them actually, short little videos on metaphysics, spirituality, general awareness, really bad but occasionally brilliant poetry, and of course Zook, the little pink alien. So just pop my name, Ani Avedisian, in the YouTube search bar and knock yourselves out and write to me about anything you want to write to me about. I love hearing from you. Thank you for all the feedback on the show. It's been a few months we've been doing this now. I think I'm kind of getting it down, although I still have to work on my timing, because as I look, I see that this is the last sip of my drink. And when I have the last sip of my drink, it means it's the end of today's show. And today's real life martini was carefully crafted by yours truly, using no vodka and no gin, because I'm on a diet just a tablespoon of dry vermouth on the rocks topped up with club soda. Yes, I am sticking to my diet this time. Remember, folks, cocktails are awesome if they are an occasional treat. If you use top quality ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink is all you need. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed recording it because I had a blast. I'm Arnie Avedisian. This was Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Avedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.